are launching a four-week series, and this is week one, uh, of a series called Jesus and Money, Following Jesus into a Life of Freedom, Generosity, and Joy. Freedom, generosity, and joy. And we've been on a journey through the Gospel of Luke. We've been just kind of tracking with the life of Jesus, and we realized that here in chapters 18 and 19, we have bumped into four stories about Jesus and money. And so we thought we'd be intentional just to pause and try to listen to these four stories of Jesus interacting with four different people when it comes to money, because he, he has a lot to say to his followers about money. Now, why this series on money? Well, this series is part of our ongoing vision to be followers of Jesus, apprentices of Jesus. And since 2018, we've been specifically focused on a vision where we're asking what it means to fully follow Jesus, like 100% with all of our heart. It's a word in the New Testament uh, that, that's used for that called discipleship, and we've been using the language of apprenticeship to talk about discipleship. It's just looking to Jesus, the master, and learning how to live our life under his wisdom and guidance, love and life. And we're trying to be intentional, series by series, for many years to talk about the basics, the fundamentals, the essentials of what it looks like to be a follower, a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus. And so we've done a whole series on how to follow Jesus in community, how to follow Jesus when it comes to prayer, scripture, repentance and confession, spiritual warfare, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, some of you have been part of our church families. We've gone through those, you know, four, five, six, seven, even 12-week series on some of those topics. But we've also done series on some more complex topics, like following Jesus when it comes to topics like sexuality, gender, the digital age we live in, our polarized age, um, Jesus' heart for women in leadership. So we've tackled some tough topics in the past. And we cannot explore all of those topics and never dive into Jesus' heart when it comes to money. So it's about time that we tackled the subject of money, especially when Jesus had so much to say about it. He cared deeply about his followers and their relationship with money. So for four weeks, I hope that you will experience the freedom, the generosity, and the joy of Jesus as we capture his vision for money and our relationship with money. Now, this series is gonna be anchored in four stories of Jesus from the scriptures, but I also just wanted to share um, a couple books that I found helpful as I've been preparing this series. So if you wanna do some further reading on your own, here's a couple books. So one is called God and Money by John Cortinez and Greg Baumer. This is an interesting book. These two guys were set on making their millions and uh, enrolled at Harvard in their master's program at Harvard to learn all about finances and business. And God got a hold of both of these guys' life and sent them on a completely different trajectory towards generosity, learning to be stewards of their money and following Jesus. And so they, they, they have an interesting story. And so they write about God and money. And also, some of you know the name Randy Alcorn. He is a great resource when it comes to money and understanding the Bible and God's perspective on finances. And so he has a book called Managing God's Money, which I found very helpful. So speaking of money, I do not know these people, 
or their publishers. So I am getting no money for having told you about these books. Just wanted to be clear, if you were wondering. Um, so as we, as we begin this four-week series, let's begin by thinking about the generosity of God. What is God like? It's an important question. Maybe as you're new to faith, you might be asking this question. What's God like? A.W. Tozer once said, quote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So when you think about God, do the words giving, generous, lavish come to mind? If you will, think of the love of God at the cross when Jesus pours out his life for the world. And listen to these words from 2 Corinthians. Paul writes this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And Jesus, we come here as your people, so aware of the richness of, of what we've received by grace when it comes to new life. You have given us new life, and we are so rich because of it. You've poured your love into our life. You've poured out your grace. You've given us the forgiveness of sins. You've promised us new life, and we love you, and we're grateful for the generosity, the self-giving love that you've poured out upon your people, and we pray that in the coming weeks, you would shape us to be a people who are generous who are free when it comes to our money, who don't live in slavery to debt, but we're freed up to love our neighbor as we love you. And so we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Is money good or bad? The American poet Carl Sandburg once wrote, quote, money is power, freedom, a cushion, the root of all evil, the sum of blessings. It's all those things, right? Is money good or bad? A few years ago, when my kids were much younger, Lucy was four years old, Ella was three, and Micah was one. Uh, I asked Lucy and Ella, the only two that could speak, um, this question. I said, kids, is money good or bad? And this was their reply. Lucy said, money is good uh, because we can send money to people who need it. Very nice response. Ella said, it's bad because Micah can choke on it. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting. The more I thought about her answer, the more poetic I thought that actually was. And deep, right? Money is good. It's a tool for many good things, beautiful things. But it's bad because many of us are choking on it, right? Lucy and Ella are revealing kind of two sides of the coin, as it were. Great good can come from how we use our money, yet many of us are choking on it. And the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy these following words from 1 Timothy 6. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. Can I just pause really quick? Those who want to get rich. I mean, I, I would venture to say it's most of us in the room. I'm not going to say all. <laughs> but it's, so let's... Let's all huddle up here. 
Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I gotta be honest, when I read those words, I see me, I see us, I see our cities. Listen to that. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith. And I want us to listen to one such story as we begin this series. If you will, would you turn to Luke 18? Luke 18, and we'll begin in verse 18. Luke 18, 18. We're only going to read the first few verses here as we begin this story of Jesus' interaction with a wealthy young man. Here we go. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy. Now just pause. Okay. We've got this rich, young, religious ruler. Now, how do we know he's young? Well, it's actually the same story is found in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's in Matthew where we read that he's a young guy. And the word in the Greek, Pastor Tim pointed out to me, is for any man under the age of 40. Now, this guy is wealthy. He's wealthy. So if you are here and maybe you hit your wealth before the age of 40, you can identify with this young guy. But the thing is, this guy's also very religious. He follows what's called the Torah, the law, the law of God found in the Old Testament. So this guy is not only young, but he's wealthy, and he's actually like what some would consider perfect. He's just like a good person. He's religious. He seems to love God a lot. This guy's got his act together, right? He's a well-rounded, fully balanced young man, socially, spiritually, physically, financially, his life is put together. And as you heard, he believes he's keeping the law. But you'll notice what Jesus will start to do with this young guy. Jesus sees something in this young guy that we cannot see. Jesus is a good doctor, and he's looked deep into the heart of this man, and he has diagnosed a problem. Now, really quick, what kind of doctor do you want? We want a doctor who will tell us the truth, right? Years ago, I once had basal cell carcinoma on my nose. Weird story, I thought it was like a mole on my nose, and I went in and it was cancer. Now, I did not like hearing that I had cancer on my nose, but you know what I would have liked less? <laughs> if my doctor had withheld that information because he was a nice doctor, quote unquote, didn't want to hurt my feelings. As we all know in the room, that is not nice. That is a cruel doctor, right? We want our doctors to tell the truth. Like, make it clear, doc. 
no matter how hard we want them to diagnose the issue properly and then tell us the treatment that will fix it. Right? That's what we want, right? I mean, sometimes we'd prefer if they had slightly better bedside manners, but, uh, but that's what we want, right? We want the truth. And what kind of doctor do you want for your soul? What if there was something growing inside of us that needed to be cut out and removed? And what if that thing inside of us was greed? The love of money? Consumerism? What if Jesus could peer deeply into my heart and see that Matthew had an issue, had a problem that was going to hurt him and others? I would want a doctor that was not trying to be too nice to tell me the truth. And Jesus is a good doctor. He sees the unseen places deep within the heart of this rich, young, religious ruler. And he sees this selfishness growing inside of him. And he knows all of it needs to be cut out. Like this guy needs open heart surgery. Now the irony is this guy says he follows the law. Right? He's a, he's a, he's a follower of God's law found in the Old Testament. But Jesus knows it's not true. Because listen to the first two commandments that God gave the people of Israel. This, some of you, if you're new to Jesus, you've heard of the Ten Commandments. Well, I want, you, I want to list the first two. This is from the book of Exodus. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. The first two commands of the 10, we hear God's heart that, that he cares a lot about what we worship. And why? Why does God care so much, right? Does he have like this pride ego thing where he just has always got to be number one in our life? No. It's that he, as the creator, shaped you, made you, made the world, and knows that when he is the only one that we worship, that it's like our life is healthy, it's put together, it's in, it's in its right place. But as soon as you and I put something above God, and in the words of Tim Keller, we make a good thing into an ultimate thing, and we can do that with all kinds of stuff. We can take good things and make them ultimate in our life so that we go to them for our comfort. We go to them for our rescue. Right? When we're in a bind, we go to them to find hope. Right? Whatever that thing is, it's a good thing which has become an ultimate thing. God knows that when we do that, when we worship something that's not God, we experience a deformation of our soul. Our life becomes out of line, unhealthy, we're not able to love God and others the way we were created to. And because he loves us, he's pointing this out. Listen to the Apostle Paul. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Catch that. Have you ever seen that before? Greed, which is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. This love of money, because in money we find our comfort, our rescue. We go to money when we're in a bind. And Jesus sees this greed growing deep inside this man. 
And he's going to challenge him to lay down his idols and stop worshiping money. So listen to verse 22. Jesus says to the man, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. If you're new to Jesus and you've never heard this story, what are you feeling? <laughs> right? Sell everything and give to the poor. It's a test. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Then come, follow me. The good doctor has diagnosed the issue in this man's soul. This guy needs open heart surgery. And the way of healing will come as he detaches from his possessions and lives a life of generosity to the poor. Jesus knows this guy needs this. Now, I believe this is love. It may not feel like love at the moment, but it's love. Because this same story in the book of Mark, chapter 10, uh, we have this little additional phrase which Luke doesn't have. Listen to this, Mark 10, 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, go sell everything and give to the poor. Jesus looked at him and loved him. It was, it's love that's compelling Jesus to be honest with the guy. Out of great love, Jesus saw this guy. This guy's trapped by his own money and wealth. And, and, and he, he wants this guy to experience joy. And so he's got to surrender and give to the poor. But the rich man walks away. Listen to verse 23. When he, the rich man, heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Sometimes we as Christian teachers, and I've done this before, um, in an effort to ease the discomfort we're all feeling in the room right now with this story, quickly point out that Jesus doesn't seem to demand this of every follower in the New Testament upon a first read, right? So, so as you start to look at other stories with Jesus, you notice he's not saying this to everybody. And then we're like, oh, phew, okay, well, that's good news, <laughs> you know? Now, while that's technically true, we, we don't see Jesus saying this particular thing to everyone. I think we quickly try to point that out because, because I'm, I'm uncomfortable. And what if Jesus would ask this of me? But Jesus tells his disciples that they have to carry their cross. Well, that's, that's surrender. He, he asks nothing short of surrender, like 100% surrender as you follow him in his way. And the image of baptism, some of you have probably seen people baptized. They go down into the water. And what is that image? That's an image of death to life, the life the way we want to live it. And coming up out of the water, it's like I'm surrendered 100% to Jesus and to what he wants from me. And so this means Jesus has the total right to ask us to surrender every penny of his money to him. It's his money, right? It's not ours. And we're going to look at that more next week when we think about stewardship. And so I don't know what Jesus will specifically ask you to do as you surrender. 
everything you have to him. Tanya and I are trying to sort out what Jesus is asking us to do with his money and stuff that he's entrusted to us for a very short time. But I don't want to water this story down. Um, the other day, literally two days ago, my son Micah does not, he's eight years old. He doesn't know I'm preaching about money um, at all. And he went to his piggy bank two days ago and he took out, he had saved up for the last couple months, you know, several months or something like that, $66. He'd saved up $66 and he was really excited. He came downstairs and he said, Daddy, here, can you give this to the church? Um, just so you know, our kids are very normal kids. <laughs> Lots of grumpy, whiny, demanding sugar. Okay, just so you know, this is not, oh, and that's nice. The pastor's kid is like, no, this was a very unique moment, right? And, and so it's like uh, $66. Um, and what, what was the first thing I did? I was like, oh, was that all your money? He goes, yeah. I was like, are you sure you want to give all your money? It's like, buddy, like, God only requires, like, 10% of that. Like, <laughs> it's like, I'm, like, discouraged. I was working on this message, and for a moment, I completely forgot that this is Micah. Micah's, like, surrendering everything. to. He's like, I want to give this to God, right? And I'm like, yeah, that's very unwise, very unwise. You shouldn't do that. No, I didn't say it that way, but I was like, okay. Uh, and then, so anyway, so he's, he's going he's gonna to find a way to give that um, here. But it's just funny how literally in my parenting, I'm going to go again. Like, if Micah's sensing this, actually, Randy Alcorn in his book, Managing God's Money, said, don't ever discourage a child from giving. Like, let them play with that. Let them test it. Let them try it on for size. Give them that taste of generosity. And don't hold them back. And so, anyway, I can't, I was holding them back. Um, and I want to say this. Being wealthy carries with it a spiritual danger. We're wealthy, but none of us think we are. Like, even when I say that, we're wealthy, you're like, no, I'm not. Matthew? <laughs> like, I don't know who you're talking about. I'm not. I love Urban Dictionary. It defines a rich person like this. A rich person, someone with a lot more money than you. Right? <laughs> So we've got this comparison game where we're never rich, right? The rich person is somebody else. And we put together like the top 10 richest people in the world. You know, look at what they earn, you know? They all have yachts and stuff like that. And we're never the rich person. But the truth is we, we are quite wealthy. Inflation is high here. It's nowhere close to how high it is in other countries, especially poor countries around the world. The cost of living here is high, for sure. And there are other places in the world that might not demand so much financially. But look around. Look at the access you and I have to free healthcare, free education for our children, the general safety of our cities, job opportunities, grocery stores filled with food. Think of something as simple as access to clean water. So much of the world has no... You and I just turn on the tap. We have access to clean water. 
We have so much to be thankful for. In many ways, when we compare ourselves with the rest of the world, we're the wealthy of the world. And I know that's hard for us to believe. I, as a kid, in a, I grew up in a missionary family, and I never saw myself as the wealthy one, ever, because I saw the kinds of homes and cars and vacations that all my friends had. And, and yet I knew the sacrifice that my parents were making for my brother and I. And I, I've learned a lot through my parents and the sacrifice that they've made. Yet, even though I could compare with so many of my friends, and I thought, well, we don't have anywhere close to what they have. I still look back on my childhood and see the opportunities I had, see the wealth that I actually had. And I want to take this seriously. Being wealthy carries with it a spiritual danger. Listen to Luke 18, verses 24 to 26. Jesus looked at him, the rich young ruler, and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Now, why, why are they asking that question? Who then can be saved? It's because the idea was that God blesses good people with money. And so if you had money in Jesus' day, the idea was, oh, you must be really godly because God only gives wealth to good people, right? But Jesus is correcting that view, right? Actually, actually, let me flip this around. It's actually those who are wealthy that are in danger spiritually. Just watch Jesus. He flips that. Why? He said, because it's, it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. By the way, if you're new to Jesus, isn't that a great image? Isn't that fun? I always want to hear that for the first time. You know, if I'd never heard that. It's a, I feel like people, when they're listening to Jesus teach, they must chuckle, right? They must laugh. Like, that's hilarious. An elephant through the eye of a needle, right? Elephant, the largest land animal that, you know, maybe Jesus' contemporaries would have known, right? And a needle, it's the smallest human-made hole, you know? Imagine a camel trying to get stuffed through the needle. That's funny, but it's serious. Being wealthy carries with it this spiritual danger because we might miss the kingdom. We might miss a life of freedom. We might miss the chance to receive the greatest love the world has ever known because we don't surrender to the king. We might miss a relationship with the living God when we're wealthy, we're tempted to forget God. And God, when God was describing his relationship with his own people in the Old Testament, he described it like this. In the prophet Hosea, he says, when I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. I'm just going to read that again. And I so think that this describes our Western Canadian secular age. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. Then they forgot me. We just go, why do I need God? <laughs> why do I need God? Forgetting, forgetting the simple truths that it was God who made you 
the God who has put breath in your lungs, the God who has given you the talents that you have. It's God that has provided you these opportunities. God who makes the trees, the oceans, the mountains, provides all things for us. And yet when we're fed and satisfied, this pride rises up in us, and we go, why do we need God? Listen to C.S. Lewis. He says, quote, one of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give. And so fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing checks, you may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent on God. We are at every moment totally dependent on God. Now remember, Jesus said, what is impossible for man is possible with God. Like Jesus goes, yeah, camels, they can't fit through the eye of the needle. Rich people, they can't get into the kingdom. But what's impossible for man is possible for God. What does that mean? Well, with God, with God, the wealthy could be saved. It's possible. It's hard, but it's possible. And so you and I, the wealthy, have some hope. Okay? So here's how you receive hope. Hold your Bible like this. All of you who brought paper Bibles, okay, got your Bible out. There's only like five of you. <laughs> Real Bibles. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, if you would, turn one page. So if we're looking like this, one page, one page over. One page over. Most of your Bibles, you should see Luke 19. What is the first story in Luke 19 about? Someone yell it out. Zacchaeus. That's right. Zacchaeus. Anyone know the story of Zacchaeus? He's a rich guy who enters the kingdom of God, right? It's a story. It's like a Scrooge story. It's like he, he's, he's, he's stealing from people. He's a tax collector. But he gets to have a meal with Jesus, and something happens at that meal where Zacchaeus is transformed, and he suddenly sees Jesus and receives the love of Jesus, and he's like, he stands up at the dinner table, and he's like, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to give like half of what I make to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone out of anything, then I'm going to pay it back four times. And if you look at uh, Luke 19, verses 9 to 8, uh, or 9 to 10, we read this. So Jesus said, today... Salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. One page. You're let, so we read Luke 18 and all of us are just like bummed out. We're like, ah, who can be saved then, right? The wealthy can't be saved. And I didn't realize until I studied it this last week, it's the next page. It's like hope. There's hope that you and I can be uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, <laughs> transformed. That you and I can be Zacchaeus, transformed from the inside out and this, having this joy of giving to those in need. So it is possible for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, but it's going to take surrender, surrender, <laughs> to surrender our finances to the will of our king 
And so we have two paths in front of us. We have the rich, young religious ruler, or we've got Zacchaeus. I mean, the, the choice is in front of me. Which one will I take? Good answer. Yes. Take Zacchaeus. As we begin this series, we must ask, where is the love of money evident in our life? Where are we seeing it evident in our life? And I, I would just encourage just four little tests that you could do. I'm going to call it the envy test, the anxiety test, the therapy test, and the frugality test. Really quick. Four little, little tests. Number one, the envy test. As we begin to go, have I, have I fully surrendered my finances to Jesus? We say, let's talk about envy. How often do I dream of someone else's home, of someone else's toys, of someone else's backyard, of someone else's vacation home, of someone else's vacation itself? So we start to just say, Holy Spirit, would you just scan my heart? Take the envy test. What about the anxiety quiz? So we think about our heart rate and breathing when it comes to something as simple as paying the bills, making ends meet, rising debt, thinking about your mortgage or your rent, How's the anxiety going? It's Jesus with great love that wants to wrap his arms around you and lead you to a place that might look simpler, a more simple way of living, but a life that is freed up. Take the therapy test. In what ways has spending become therapy to you? A way of dealing with various emotions. Maybe a way of remaining in control maybe a way of escaping life. And finally, maybe some of us in the room need to take the frugality test. In what ways has being frugal become an identity thing of yours, but it's led you to become a miser, to judgmentalism, to hoarding, to frustration with others? See, money can have a deep hold on us whether whether we think we are frugal or frivolous with money, either way. But our frugality can become pride, and frugality can lead to a scarcity mindset, and frugality can lead to judgmentalism of others. So it's, again, it's not just the frivolous who've got money problems. It, the, the, the frugal can have a whole different set of issues that Jesus wants to like lean in and go, I love you, like I want you freed up. I want your heart freed up. So where is the love of money evident in our life? Now, it might seem funny to use the word love, right? But but to love is to trust. And so we're asking about trust tied to money. It's hard to confirm this historically, but it's said that John Rockefeller, the founder of the Standard Oil Company and once one one of the most wealthy men in the 20th century, he was once famously asked, how much is enough? Just a little bit more, said John Rockefeller. I'd be safe with just a little bit more. I I would start to be generous with just a little bit more. I'd be able to trust God and his plan with just a little bit more. 
I'd be able to have peace and sleep at night with just a little bit more. Now, what if our prayers could move from a little bit more and shift to the words that we read in Be Thou My Vision? Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. What if that could become our prayer? That we would say, Jesus, would you become our treasure? And as we'll find in the next few weeks, we always think our treasure follows our heart. Think about it for a second. That our treasure follows our heart. Wherever our heart goes, well, that's what we'll spend money on, right? That's what we invest. But Jesus says that's not true. Jesus said that our heart always follows our treasure. So where you're spending, that's where your heart's going. Where you're investing, that's where your heart is. And Jesus welcomed us, and we'll learn more about this in the weeks to come, to place our treasure in him. It's like, how do we do that? Okay, more on that later. Place our treasure upon him, and our heart will follow. So what if the Holy Spirit could loosen the trust that we've placed in finances and do this beautiful work of freedom in us? And what if our hands could open and everything God has given us, that we'd see it as a gift that he's entrusted to us? And what if that would lead us to give, save, and spend? To give, save, and spend in ways that line up with God's heart? Then maybe we'd experience joy. So what if this year could be a year of freedom, generosity, and joy? As you feel like Jesus is freeing your heart and healing you. And I want to say a specific word to anyone in the room who feels guilt and shame around a specific financial issue in your life. There's a temptation to um, lose hope when you feel guilt and shame over something. And I want to give a specific word to you to tell you you are loved by, by the King of Kings. You are so loved, and he wants to take your life, hold you, and begin to walk with you to a place of freedom that you would know that you are, your identity is not one who made a mistake. Your identity is a beloved child of God, and he's delighted to untangle whatever mess you're in, no matter how deep in debt you are. He'd love to walk with you so your heart would be set free. We've got some exciting things planned for our church. If you have your calendar, just mark on February 4th, we've, got, uh, we've invited Ron Davis. He's a member of our church family. He's just so brilliant when it comes to money. He's gonna come and walk us through six financial principles that will help us follow Jesus. The seminar is called Kingdom Finances, Money in the Hands of an Apprentice of Jesus. It's gonna be good. And it's gonna be right after our 5 p.m. service. So it'll be at 6.30 p.m. on February 4th. So when all of you are attending the 5 p.m., you'll just be like, oh, cool, it starts in 15 minutes after I'm done my new service time at 5 p.m. Anyway, uh, and then this spring, we're hoping to launch, you know how we have like the Alpha course and marriage course, and we've got a bunch of courses here at the church. We're hoping to launch a six-week course that will walk through the practical 
um, ways in which we could, hey, pull out the budget, let's get free, let's figure out how to be generous. And so I'm excited about that. But my hope is that this four-week series, the seminar on February 4th, the course maybe in April and May when we offer it, all of it will allow us to experience joy. The joy Zacchaeus felt, right? And the joy that I know Jesus hoped this rich man would have felt. But it all begins as we think about the gospel. The gospel, as Tim Keller reminded me years ago when I heard him preach on the rich young ruler, he said, remember the good news. The good news is that there was another rich young ruler, and his name was Jesus. And he left the riches of heaven and emptied himself and became poor and suffered and died on a cross so that you and I might have the riches of forgiveness and the riches of grace. That's the gospel. And that's what we keep coming back to time and time again. Why are we generous? Because God was so generous with us. And Jesus is not gonna ask you to do anything he was not willing to do. He left riches, gave it all up, that you might experience the riches of his grace. And so if you're new to Jesus, new to Christianity, this is who we're modeling our life after, the one who was so generous to us. And just as a personal note, I just wanna say, as I've been thinking about this series for a while now, I just notice how easily my hands close, right? like a fist. I'm afraid of letting go. Like, can I actually trust Jesus? My deepest fear is that God won't take care of me. If I let go, even physically, just thinking about my holding on, the scarcity mindset and Will he take care of me if I actually let go? Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 18. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And so, where's my hope, right, when I got these clenched fists? What if our hope was not in wealth, but my hope was truly in God? What would it look like? And I pray the Holy Spirit will move in your life, as I hope he's moving in mine, that in the next four weeks or so, we just watch the way we slowly open up to the work of the Holy Spirit. Can we stand together? Let's stand together as we worship. I want to let you know our prayer team is going to come forward. Our prayer team is going to be in the prayer room and up front. If you are feeling need to pray for provision, right, that God would provide. Um, if you're feeling tied up, tethered to something, and you need freedom, let the prayer team pray with you. If you're feeling shame or guilt around finances, let the prayer team pray for you. Or for anything else, like anything else going on. It doesn't even have to be about money. Our prayer team would love to pray. But just as we end, would you close your eyes? We're going to spend some time in prayer. And if you're willing, um, as we always do here, 
feel free to open your hands in prayer. And um, it might be helpful to start off with a fist, because <laughs> I think that's true, the reality of really where we're at. And as you feel led, feel free to open your hands. But only as you feel led. Like, Jesus comes to you in love. He looks at you and he loves you. He says, do you trust me? Are you willing to surrender the next four weeks to really hear what I have to say to you? I feel like that's what Jesus is saying. Like, are, you re- are you opened? And so Jesus, we stand here and in all honesty, it's hard to open up our hands to trust you. But dear God, we come and we surrender. And we say, have your way in our life. We trust that you have our good in mind, that you're leading us to a life of joy and generosity and freedom. And so we come surrendering all that we are, recognizing that everything we have is yours. And we pray, dear God, that you would set your people free.